At The Shape of the World, our very first ever episode was one where we talked about the wild animals that live within cities. Today, we're looking at domesticated animals and the history of humans having farm animals live with us in cities, then not having them here, and then cautiously and relatively recently, inviting them back to live with us once more. The history of animals in cities has a lot to tell us about who we are and where we've been. Today's guest is an expert on the historical relationship between animals and city dwellers. This is Jill Bridell. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Andrew Robichaud. I'm assistant professor of history at Boston University and author of the book, Animal City, The Domestication of America. Welcome, Andrew. And tell me, why this book? Why this subject? There was just this sort of open question that hadn't really been fully answered by historians, which was about what were our American cities like in the 1800s with all of these domesticated animals as part of the urban environment. Great. Before we dig into that, I should probably say, just as a warning to our audience, that animals were treated more roughly 200 years ago than they are today. And in this episode, there'll be some brief descriptions of animal treatment that might trigger sadness or anger when you hear about it, and that might not be the right fit for everyone. Also, throughout this episode, we're going to talk a lot about the SPCA. That stands for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, a group which still exists today. So, Andrew, what was it like in an American city in the mid-1800s? What animals would we have seen there? If you were to be plopped down into really any American city in the early to mid-1800s, there were all these domesticated animals, thousands of horses. You can imagine what that world must have smelled like and sort of the chaos of city streets. Cows grazing in open lots. You might have seen, if you were there at the right time, an urban cattle drive through a busy urban thoroughfare. Being female, I'm imagining wearing one of those long dresses because all the dresses were long back then. And if I had on some shoes that, you know, I would have had on shoes that don't have rubber soles because those weren't invented yet. And then I'm (laughs) stepping out into the street and I'm walking next to horses and maybe a cow or two. Suddenly I understood the term, that old fashioned term of carriage trade that that was the the Mm. women that would go to the stores in their own private carriages and referred to sort of a social set. But I'm realizing now like how handy it would be to have your own carriage rather than walking through dung to go to get to the social (laughs) call you were going to make. I always just thought about it. Oh, it's the ease of not walking, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, that's interesting. And there are a lot of sort of structures in cities that emerge to deal with this very issue. I mean, Curbs have a number of purposes, but one of them is that it sort of keeps the manure in a certain part of the street. And the same is true with when I take my students out into Boston, I always show them the boot scrapers that these old buildings have where you really had to scrape your boots because you were walking through some urban environments that were that would follow you into your house if you weren't careful. Yes, and they called them boot scrapers, but I'm sure they were also scraping off the ladies' slippers. little delicate things, too. Yes, yes. So you start the book with a visit to New York by Charles Dickens, and he landed there in 1842. Yeah, and this passage from Dickens was one of the uh, first things I read that really sparked my imagination on this topic and made me think that there was a really good research project here. Um, So that passage starts with, 
As Dickens prepared to cross Broadway, he watched for carriages and omnibuses that jockeyed for space on the busy street and whose presence filled the air with a constant clatter of hooves and wheels on uneven roads. But Dickens had to keep watch for another type of street traffic. Mixing with the ladies in bright clothes and parasols were two portly sows, Dickens observed, and around the corner came half a dozen gentlemen hogs. Dickens spent two pages reflecting on New York City's pigs, the independent Republican hogs who scavenged streets by day and returned home each night, spending their lives transforming the city's trash into meat. Dickens reflected on the life of another solitary swine, lounging homeward by himself, with one good ear, having parted with the other to vagrant dogs. And in the rotten and debaucherous five points, Dickens again noted the numerous porcine residents. Do they ever wonder, he asked, why their masters walk upright in lieu of going on all fours? Here in the center of the largest American city, in what seemed like all parts of town, were swine. Although Dickens seemed especially enamored with New York's gentlemen hogs, pigs were not the only animals that inhabited 19th century American cities, nor was New York all that exceptional for its pervasive and unruly population of urban livestock. For much of the 19th century, American cities were ecologically diverse places, invariably made up of a multitude of domesticated, semi-domesticated, and undomesticated species. Indeed, animals were so commonplace in American cities that at times their presence seemed not worth mentioning at all. That's great. So that was one of the things where it first dawned on you that there was this major aspect of life in American cities in the 1800s that had been kind of overlooked? Yeah, yeah. And that, that passage in particular was just so vibrant and humorous and just this wonderful observation of what the city was like on the ground. And it really did sort of alert me to the fact that there was this world that we really have neglected as scholars and as historians. Do you think that Dickens was able to see it and be surprised by it because he wasn't surrounded by animals in London? Were European cities different? London and European cities were different than American cities. My sense is that London and other cities in Europe are really decades ahead of the United States in a number of ways. And one of those ways is the ways in which they're restricting uh, pigs in particular, as Dickens observed, but also other domesticated animals in cities. And London is also decades ahead in terms of the development of the humane movement or societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals which emerge there in the 1820s, 1830s, but not here in the United States until the 1860s. So yes, it's, you know, this is really important to think about as a historian too. Dickens is writing for a British crowd that would likely have looked on these descriptions with a sort of sense of humor or a chuckle looking at these Americans and saying, oh, look what they're trying to do. They're trying to build a city in America and this is what they've got. Um, so his description is certainly shaped by his audience and the assumptions that he has coming from London, where many of these human-animal relationships in cities had already been restricted or revised or reformed in one way or another. Can you tell us about how the SPCA functioned as a semi-private police force? Yeah, so the SPCA is a really interesting organization. They're really at the forefront of what's part of a larger remaking of laws and culture around animals in cities. The first SPCA is established in New York in 1866, and very quickly they begin spreading across the country. This is where 
these 19th century SPCAs are really quite unique, I think, is that they have quite a bit of authority. They have police power. So they're actually set up as corporations of the state. And in most cases, they're given these widespread authorities to enforce animal cruelty laws. And so they have officers, they have badges, they can make arrests. So what are they giving tickets for? People being mean to their pets and mean to their farm animals? Well, the vast majority, over 90%, I'd say, are for abuses to horses. So either driving a horse that's lame, that's injured, or what was at that time called overbeating a horse or excessive punishment of a horse. So is that because horses were so very visible? I mean, they're large, they're big. If somebody's beating a horse, it's very obvious and visual. Was that part of what inflamed the public's desire to enact some laws for protection of animals? So early on, the SPCA is actually interested in quite a few different animal species. Henry Berg, who is the president of the ASPCA in New York, is interested in how calves are treated when they're brought to market. In many cases, they're tied up and stacked up while they're still alive. The plucking of live fowl was something that was commonplace. New York is importing hundreds of thousands of turtles each year, and Henry Berg targets that because they're being imported alive. They were strung together. But increasingly, as those other forms are being regulated and sort of pushed out of the city, what's left are the horses. What do you think really precipitated this change in the way people viewed animals? Like, why did we go from being a species who largely didn't care much about how other animals were treated to really galvanizing this idea that cruelty to other animals was insensible, inhumane, unethical? It does seem to be part of a cultural movement where people in the 19th century are really thinking quite a bit about how to improve the world. What historians call reformers of the 19th century who are really interested in things like abolitionism, these sisterhood of reformers, as one uh, historian called it, that is very much connected to a c- certain branches of Christianity and Protestantism. The animal reform movement, the animal welfare movement fits with that. So some things like, so the other things that might be tied to, like Jane Addams and Hull House, worrying about the conditions that other human beings were living in, starting to think of more beyond just one's own family or even the community you grew up in, but starting to recognize sovereignty and others that eventually led out to also being able to look at animals. Yeah, and I think it's part of a larger thinking of social relationships and how does a society change. These reformers are looking to rebuild a certain set of social relationships by improving how people relate to animals and therefore how they'll relate to one another. I could also see, too, cities being a place where that would happen in that a city is a place where you have to encounter the other. You can't stay with a little group of 200 people who are just like you anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. This movement fits in with a number of other political and social movements that are urban in the United States in thinking about why the 1860s, you have the abolition of slavery and many reformers are looking for the next thing. And I would also just point out that Americans are also coming out of the Civil War. And that is just this profoundly transformative experience for everyone, where people are thinking about violence, thinking about suffering and carnage. People are thinking about death and suffering in very specific ways that I think spills over into this animal welfare movement. People who are coming back from war 
The smell of a slaughterhouse probably smells a lot like a battlefield. Some of your insights seem to have come from looking at art. You describe a number of paintings in the book. Is there one that, when you found it, particularly startled you with what it revealed? You know, one of the major changes in 19th century cities was the ways in which livestock and slaughterhouses are really pushed out of the residential parts of cities. And so that's a process that takes time, and it's really a political process. It's a contentious process in many ways. And one of the paintings that I really love that's in this book is called A View of San Francisco in 1850, and it's by George Henry Burgess. And it's actually commissioned for a very wealthy man named James Flood, who I believe made his fortune off of a silver mine in the 1870s, I think. And so James Flood is commissioning this painting in 1878, of San Francisco in 1850. And so he's sort of trying to create this romanticized vision of the city and what it was, knowing that it was growing into this major metropolis by 1878. And one of the details I love about this painting is that there's a cattle drive that's depicted as part of this scene. And you can see it on the left side of the painting. There are also horses. There's evidence of Spanish settlement and tents. And I love that they're the cattle in the picture because I think what it suggests is that this was a major change. When people in 1878 were looking back and saying, what was unique, what was different about that gold rush city? One of the things that came to mind was, well, there were all these cattle drives. Remember those cattle drives? Those were the old days. And now we're this sort of modern, cleaned up metropolis in a lot of ways. I think that parts of this animal city, both then in the 1870s, 1880s, early 1900s, and even now, people can sort of look at them with rose-colored glasses and say, oh, wasn't that sort of quaint that there were cattle and cows and pigs in the city? But in many ways, this is, you know, the reality of those experiences are much grittier, much more contentious, and much more troubling in some cases. Right. Well, I mean, we've spoken about the cruelty to animals, and of course, there was a lot of killing of animals. I've wondered sometimes about how our perceptions of death have changed so much in that we very rarely witness the killing of an animal that we're going to eat for food anymore, and how extremely common and literally an everyday occurrence it would have been in American cities in the 1800s. Yeah, that's something that really stood out to me as well. And even if you yourself weren't slaughtering animals or working with animals, You probably saw them. You probably knew where the slaughterhouse was. You probably heard the sounds of the slaughterhouses. You probably saw blood running on occasion. And that really is, you know, I think there's an intensity of that in specialized businesses within the city. But that experience is really, for the most part, a part of human experience historically, that you would understand or experience or know animal death in a more frequent, uh, sort of an everyday kind of way. And that is certainly something that's changing in the 19th century. And so I think about the 19th century as this period in which in American cities, they're sort of the forefront of this increasingly modern set of relationships we have with animals where those violent and bloody interactions with animals, the animal death is rendered invisible. And, you know, I'm a historian, so I don't know exactly what that means for our present day existence, but I think it's quite profound to think that we now sort of have this modern existence that's very much cleansed of animal death and even animal sex that was once sort of commonplace in human experience. 
Exactly. I think about that a lot with the age that my parents were. My parents were really on that cusp of witnessing that change. My father actually grew up on a farm. My mother grew up in a city. However, my uh, mother who grew up in the city, like probably most people who grew up in cities, still had relatives that lived on farms. And she reports sort of going to them and being horrified by her grandmother wringing the neck of the chicken. And um, I just think about that part of it is the agrarian society. If you're living around a lot of animals, you have a lot less opportunity to become sentimental about a single animal. And that when you're in the city, you start to be able to become more sentimental about a single animal because you have fewer of them around you. You know, maybe you like the policeman's horse or... Then, of course, eventually we did much there was much more domestication of dogs and cats. Um, and I don't really have a specific philosophy or a point to make about that. But certainly it does seem like it was a really big a shift. And even the books that I read as a child, yeah. I was sometimes reading books that were written when my mother was a child because those were the ones she wanted to share with me. And they really did describe another world. They often described the shock of a city person going to the the country and being chased by the geese or the turkey um, and finding <laughs> it a very brutal environment. Of course, meanwhile, as we know, all of us were still, you know, they, my mother was still eating all of those things that came from the farm. She just hadn't seen where they had come from. And now that's yeah. times 10,000 for me <laughs> growing up in uh-huh. the 70s and my children growing up in the 2000s. Yeah. I mean, there really is, in many cases, an urban-rural divide on some of these issues around animals and and the experience of killing animals or killing your own food, that that's still very much part of a culture in, in many parts of the United States. And that there is this sort of people sort of look across this divide and can't really comprehend each other in terms of how they think about animals, just as people living on farms or in rural areas who hunt or fish, you know, look at the look at city people and think they're ridiculous for being so sentimental about how to treat animals. And many people living in cities look the other way and say, how can you hunt and fish and, you know, <laughs> inflict cruelty and suffering and death on another creature. And so there is this real geographical divide, I think, as well. And I'm even thinking about in Brooklyn and other cities that there's a move toward butchering your own meat, getting back in touch with that side of things and growing food. Also, you know, even we, we raised chickens in our side yard for quite some time. And then uh, we've had uh, honeybee hives and we live right in the city. But we're sort of getting back in touch with that agrarian side. I think that's been an interesting development. I should say that I wrote most of this book in an apartment in Bernal Heights in San Francisco. And I had a neighbor two doors down who had chickens. And I had a neighbor one door down who had a dog. And the dogs and the dog and the chickens were constantly talking to each other. And um, as I was sitting there typing and writing this book, I uh, was reflecting a lot about um, the, the continued presence of animals in cities in new ways too, bringing back chickens. In some cases, there are goats and sheep that are grazing public lands or open lots. That's all sort of coming back in certain ways. But like you said, you know, there are some folks who are butchering and slaughtering their own meat, but most of these reurbanization of animal husbandry tend to take a certain form that doesn't fundamentally disrupt the aesthetics of urban life. We're not, you know, people aren't really advocating bringing back slaughterhouses or slaughtering an animal in their backyard 
or having relationships with animals that require some degree of violence in order to um, contain that animal. So it's interesting to see where it's coming back, but it's coming back in certain ways that don't really offend our urban modern aesthetics. Right. That's interesting about it, sort of not disrupting the aesthetic. You know, even out at O'Hare Airport, um, they use uh, goats and sheep and even llamas to do some of the grazing rather than using mowers. They're very efficient at uh, being able to go into the ditches and gullies that don't really take a mower very well. That's a form of labor that animals are doing in our cities now. They're cutting the grass. And it just reminded me of this moment in history, too, when horses are doing a lot of work in cities, even after there's all this machinery that can do that same work like cars and trucks and automobiles. Horses are still better for clearing rubble or getting through a narrow passage or moving in certain parts of the city that aren't well paved. Let's talk a little bit about dogs for a minute. Um, first, I was wondering if you could relay the incredible story of the dog in the shop window that ends up really spurring some of the changes in uh, thinking about treatment of animals in New York. So that story begins with an SPCA member who walks by a cider shop in Manhattan, and he notices that there is in the window of the cider shop a dog on a treadmill. And what the dog is supposedly doing is operating a churn or a press that is pressing the cider, pressing those barrels. The SPCA takes issue with this, and they prosecute the case, and they say that this is a form of cruelty. And it turns out dog machines were very prevalent in the 19th century, and they're especially prevalent in, in the dairy industry. As you have the growth of cities, you also have the growth of specialized dairy production. On a farm in the 1700s, churning butter was one activity that somebody did, and they maybe did it for an hour a day or 20 minutes a day. But in this new economy where businesses specializing in milk production, it becomes this all-day activity. And so dogs are used to fill this labor gap. I'm going to interrupt our conversation for a minute because I actually had to look this up. I wasn't familiar with treadmills other than the kind at the gym. So for those of you listening who are not mechanically inclined, before there was electric power and before there were gas-powered motors, treadmills were the tool that generated power to run machines. There were different designs, but basically a human or a farm animal, like maybe an ox, would walk and that motion would turn a crank. That could be used for all sorts of tasks. The machine might lift buckets of water or press a heavy millstone onto kernels of wheat so it could crush the grains and turn them into flour. Or in Andy's examples, the treadmill was used to press cider or churn butter. You know those old windmills in Holland? They operated on the same principle, only they used the power of wind instead of manual physical labor to turn a wheel around that then ran a machine of some sort. The kind of treadmill the dogs were on was like a treadmill at the gym, more or less. Imagine it at an incline, though. It's tilted upward, and when somebody steps onto it, the weight on it causes it to move. Once the dog stepped on, the dog would have no choice but to walk forward. If he didn't, his feet slid backwards because they were on a surface that gravity was constantly pulling downhill. And, of course, the dog would have been in some kind of a harness so it couldn't jump off. The most comfortable thing to do in that situation, really the only option, is to start walking and not stop. That motion, that energy generated by the dog, was operating the cider press. Okay, let's go back and hear what happens next in Andrew's story. 
the case of the cider press goes to court. And one of the big questions in the court case was, could the dog stop and cease working if it wanted to? One side said, no, it couldn't because it was harnessed up with rope around its neck. So if it stopped walking, it would choke. The other side said, yes, we don't chain up our animals. They can work freely. And quite often they choose to work. So I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and so would they just have two or three or four dogs? And when one would get tired, they would just change it out for the next one? Or did they just let the dog go until it died? And then they'd pull another dog out to take its place? Many of the people that I study who, who had these dog machines talked about using them in a responsible way, which is to say they would have several dogs. They'd take shifts that when the dogs would get tired, they'd give them a rest. Some of them talk about how well they feed them, how well they treat them, um, how long they lived. And I think that there was, in certain cases, this sort of paternalistic approach to the use of these dogs, which is to say, they're going to do work for me, but I'm going to treat them really well. Now, I don't know what the actual reality was. I think that there were probably lots and lots of dogs that were doing forced labor and living pretty <laughs> miserable lives on those machines. What was humans' relationship with uh, dogs as pets like during that time? Was it unusual for somebody living in a city like New York or Boston in the 19th century to keep a dog as a pet? Was it, Were pets associated with power and privilege? Were they a way to show a an excess of resources that you had plenty of food and that you could afford to keep a dog or what was what was our relationship like back then pet ownership as we know it now would have been pretty rare in the 19th century a dog or a cat that you keep exclusively in your house maybe take out for walks but who is sort of pampered and lives this sort of really nice existence there certainly were people in the 19th century particularly people who are more well off who did have that sort of relationship with a pet but pet ownership and pet culture, I think, really flourishes in the late 19th century. And part of it really flourishes as part of this humane movement, massive cultural production of stories and culture around keeping pets. There's a political dimension to this, too. Leaders of this humane movement really thought that if children had pets, if children could learn kindness toward animals at home in a domestic sphere, at a young age, that they would become better human beings. I do think that a lot of people have relationships with dogs in particular in a way that we wouldn't really call pet ownership, but that was sort of a more companionate kind of relationship. I'm thinking actually even about my parents and grandparents are not of the generation that I study, but there are little traces of this kind of relationship in like my dad's childhood, for example, where they had a family dog who they would see like a couple times a week, who would be out wandering and foraging and living its life and would come home, you know, for a few days at a time and then they wouldn't see it for a while. And so I think one of those fragments of what might have been a more 19th century kind of relationship with a pet. Yeah, it's interesting that we've moved toward this formalization of that relationship and even not describing it as dog and its owner. We talk about companion animals. The language has changed so significantly around pet ownership. Do you have pets? I do. We, uh, we have a dog. We have two daughters. And when my older daughter started to be of the age to ask for a dog, 
I said, not until you're eight. I had to get like, those early parenting years out of the way before we also had another living yeah. organism that I was responsible for. Yeah. I mentioned that to you because I know that you're about to have a baby. So I uh, yes. just like a little tip there, yeah. maybe delay the... <laughs> um, but we'd like to get a dog someday. Yeah. So I also was thinking about that, you know, you've got this whole future ahead of you. You're going to be surprised at how many kids' books are about animals. Like they admit that animals are often used as a proxy for children. Like the Arthur books are really about kids. Arthur is basically completely a show about humans, but they have animal forms. Um, And What is Arthur supposed to be? um, Is he a rabbit? He's not a rabbit. Oh, an aardvark. Aardvark. I mean, it's remarkable how much of childhood is centered around animals. It really is. But I'm interested in seeing how that's going to work out on a personal level, experiencing that. And I'm sure I'll have lots of complicated feelings about it. (laughs) Yeah, I think you will. You know, and I had a lot of complicated feelings because I would read these to my children, these books like The Big Red Barn, knowing full well that agriculture didn't look like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. That kind of bucolic thing where the farmer kept two two geese and two goats right. and two sheep and two cows and, you know, this little small, idyllic kind of farm situation just wasn't what was happening in America. Yeah. And then, as I said in the book, you know, it's it's strange that we sort of, we really set up our kids for this huge shock all this children's literature, stuffed animals, connection to animal that, animals that gets cultivated, animals as friends, as personalities. Mm-hmm. And then at some age, they learn about the realities and it's so bleak. That's part of this real discomfort we have as a society is that we sort of enter adulthood. And for most Americans, this real shock of what the reality of animal existence is. Andrew, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much, Jill. It was my pleasure. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Dr. Andrew Robichaud gives you fresh insight into the deep and intense relationship we have with domesticated animals. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World and the Office of Modern Composition that produces it are both carbon neutral. We've purchased carbon offsets from Tradewater, and you can find the information about that on our website. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Andrew Robichaud's work and a drawing of him by the artist Nicole V. Hill, and much more. The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Loza. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Andrew Robichaud, and to Boston University.